primary stroke center and a level four trauma center. Wayne Memorial also opened a cardiac cath lab in 2016 and celebrates its centennial September 19th of this year. WMH.org. It's 7 p.m., so let's talk vets. This program is produced by Vets for Vets, and I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, USAF, 1968-1972, reporting is ordered. Our mission is simple, to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans and active service members and their families. And March is Women's History Month, so tonight's Ladies' Night here on Let's Talk Vets. We had the distinct honor to speak with two remarkable women who are making substantial contributions to our veterans, our military establishment, and our country. Both suffer from military-connected trauma, but as you'll, you'll see in very different ways, and as you'll hear, these ladies have resolved to put their personal struggles aside to help others. Psychology Today defines trauma as the experience of severe psychological distress following any terrible or life-threatening event. Sufferers may develop emotional disturbances such as extreme anxiety, anger, sadness, survivor's guilt, and of course PTSD, now referred to commonly as PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. And most of us are familiar with that. We've heard it enough. This condition is now commonly called post-traumatic stress injury in recognition that it is truly an injury. Regardless of what you call it, this condition has many lingering effects. PTSI is not exclusively um, for those who have experienced the horrors of combat. Nope, as you'll hear, the causes of PTSI are many, and the effects are far-reaching. Karen Morris is a New York State licensed psychoanalyst practicing in Narrowsburg. She specializes in trauma and helping veterans suffering from PTSI find new purpose in life and meaningful, productive lives. Janelle Marino-Mendez is charwoman and CEO of Military Sexual Trauma Movement. Her mission is to give voice to the victims of military sexual trauma and while she's at it to raise public awareness. But first, here are your notable dates in March. March is Women's History Month. March 3rd is the Naval Reserve birthday. March 13th is Canine Veterans Day. This date set aside as the official birthday of the United States Canine Corps and a day to honor their service. March 25th is Medal of Honor Day, and that is a day, of course, to honor the heroism and sacrifices of Medal of Honor recipients in the United States. And March 29th is Vietnam Veterans Day, a national day to recognize and honor veterans who served in the military during the Vietnam War. Well, Karen Morris, as we said, is a New York State licensed psychoanalyst practicing in Narrowsburg, especially in the treatment of military trauma. As you'll hear, she's particularly passionate when it comes to helping veterans deal with the lingering effects of military-connected trauma. Those who suffer from this condition are constantly plagued by the specter of reliving the events which they have been part of or witnessed. A sight, sound, or even a smell may trigger a recurrence of the traumatic event. In turn, the veteran may have difficulty functioning in everyday life finding and holding employment, and dealing with daily tasks and challenges that most of us simply take for granted. Karen is also an active contributor to Given Hour, which is founded by Dr. Barbara Van Dallen in 2005, and it is a national network of 6,100 volunteers who have provided 50,000 hours of free mental health services to veterans and service members and their families. 
Speaking this morning with Karen Morris, uh, you're a licensed mental health professional currently practicing here in, in Narrowsburg. Give us an overview about your work and your mission as it pertains to veterans. Well, I am a New York State licensed psychoanalyst, which is a very individual form of psychotherapy in a confidential setting. And as such, I've dedicated one hour a week for a year at a time to work with a veteran or veterans' family members for free psychotherapy for one year as a, as a provider for a given hour. Is there any particular clinical area that you specialize in? One of my specializations is in working with people with war trauma or natural catastrophes. I am a specialization in trauma. So how did you come to delve into veterans' issues and to specialize in that area? Well, that is a very personal story. Before I was a psychoanalyst, while I was in training many years ago, I was married to a veteran of a foreign war. And then when I first met this man, I did not know that this was part of his history. It had been um, 20 years earlier in his life, and it was something that he had never shared with me. So this lovely person that I fell in love with turned out to have been a veteran. He was an Iranian, and when he was 20 years old, his country was invaded by Iraq. And during that invasion, he saw what was happening. Cities were being blown up all around him. And as a 20-year-old, he decided to get away, went to the airport and got on a plane that was going to Europe. And before the plane took off, soldiers came onto the plane and took all the young men off. Very emotional experience for me, finding out about this part of his life. So he was conscripted into the army. I did not know about this and until within a month of our marriage, his personality completely changed. I had no idea about what was happening. It became very dangerous for me. So this was like a completely unknown person. And about six months in, it started to become very, very clear that something was horribly wrong. But I had no idea what was happening to him or to myself. So I was in training. And um, one of my supervisors saw that I was under incredible stress, but didn't understand it. And he said, like, what's wrong? Something's wrong. And I just told him one story. And he said, Oh, my God, you know, it sounds like your your husband is something very wrong. Well, I didn't find out what that wrong was until one night I had a, a nightmare. And uh, in the nightmare, I was in a trench and just unimaginable things were happening in the trench. And I woke up screaming and he was lying next to me and told me at that moment that he thought I was an Iraqi soldier with a gun to his head. I didn't know, like, where was that coming from? And in the morning when I told him the full dream, he told me that when he was a soldier in Iran on the Iraqi border, that exact thing that happened to me in the dream had happened to him. So it was PTSI, correct? Yes. Well, that's a that's a rough awakening right. for you. So why has this become an area of interest in my pr- profession and my practice? It's because of that experience that I learned how trauma is transmitted from person to person. It's not that it's just happening to the veteran of a war. It's imploding in the person constantly, and it's being broadcast to family members, to to friends, to loved ones, and to the whole society eventually. Well, it can also affect first responders and people that see and witness horrific things, right? Absolutely, yes. Because it's basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've concluded that it's the uh, inability of the mind and the conscience to reconcile. That's correct. So this has to be transmitted somehow because we can't turn it into information that that's going to help us in the moment. We can't necessarily calm ourselves down when we're when our nervous system's been completely flooded with adrenaline that can't be processed. So it becomes a very toxic situation for the individual. When we spoke initially, you donate uh, your time and talent to an organization called Give an Hour. 
So what's this group's mission, and when and how was this organization founded? Well, Given Hour was founded in 2005. Its mission is to develop a sustainable national network of volunteers capable of responding to both acute and chronic conditions that arise in our society and our families. We are currently focused on meeting mental health needs among the military and veteran community by providing free, accessible, and fully confidential counseling services to service members, veterans, and their families, and their communities through our network of volunteer mental health professionals. We're also working to change the culture of mental health in this country through our campaign to change direction. So how many professionals in this area are involved with Given Hour? Now, it's interesting um, what designates an area because we have the Internet now that we can meet with individuals on over. So uh, I don't know how many in this region, but uh, there are Given Hour professionals available in every state. So these resources are available 24 hours a day? I mean, is there a a, a hotline-type service of sorts it's not a hotline, but it, there is a website if you're looking for services and to connect with a professional. Um, these are all licensed professionals. There are, I think, around 8,000 licensed professionals now around the country and have already provided over 300,000 hours of free services. So should someone call me and want to arrange a consultation, my commitment is to weekly or twice-weekly in private psychotherapy for at least a minimum of a year, I, I make that commitment. So this isn't going to get cut off because we run out of time or funding or anything like that. If, if someone is looking for that service, um, all they need to do is go to www.givenhour.org, and there's all kinds of information on there, and you, there's a listing of available therapists, you know, for however many you'd see then are available in the region or it can do some kind of um, Skyping or telephone service. One of the common questions I, I hear after they're separated from military service, what is my purpose now? So where do you start? Well, I start wherever the person is at. That's so often a feeling of, of being lost or without purpose or there are terrible stressors in the family relations, or there's a problem with not feeling anything, or guilt, shame, rage can be a problem. I mean, it really is so different depending on the person's experience. Fear of homelessness and wanting to get back into meaningful life. We start with wherever the person is at just by beginning to talk and feeling safe talking and building a trusting relationship. Without getting into specifics, can you give us a little uh, example of a veteran that came to you with a particular type of problem and how you went about the process and and where they are now as far as in the process of getting um, better, uh, for want of a better term, or healing? I don't like to give personal examples because I don't want to maybe give any clue to someone's identity because it's such a private journey. But I've... I've helped people go from homelessness back into more secure living situations that they were able to put together on their own what was right for them because it's so important for the person to find their own way. And I I think that everybody wants to know there's help out there, but there's also a part of us that doesn't really want to be helped. That's what's so special about speaking on a one-to-one basis is that you're really there by your own volition, and you can talk about wanting help and not wanting help at the same time because it, it is a conflict. We do need to feel like we have our own volition and putting our lives back together, but we also always need help. From well, us. I think once once I decide that I want help, now the onus is going to be on me and I'm going to have some responsibility, and maybe that's a little scary also. Yeah, that is. So... The military does a really good job getting folks in and preparing them. The basic training model, we're going to get everybody to a basic level, and then we're going to build you up as a unit. And once you get built up as a unit, then you're part of something. 
you have an identity that you didn't have before. Do you feel that if they did a better job transitioning out, would uh, help with some of these problems that these vets are facing? It is. It's a. Um, it's the big paradox, because um, you you've constructed a, a sort of a an experiment in which you're you're getting everybody to be on the same page. Where you know, in, in terms of my identity, is that we're all in this together, and we need to rely on, on one another in order to. Uh, build trust so that we um, have the best chance of survival. But it's not really true. I think that that's part of why it's so difficult for people to leave. It's easy to walk out, but it's our minds that uh, we're not free, in a sense, because we haven't been free. In, in many ways, we give ourselves over in trust that this is going to be the best experience of my life, which is what I'm told. And there's so much to be gained by training also. If you hear Adam Driver, he talks so eloquently about his training as a Marine as being the best thing that ever happened to him in his life. And then he was injured before he was deployed, so he couldn't be deployed with his unit. And that was tremendously painful for him that he couldn't go with them. He talks about this training as really having turned him into a more uh, complete human being. It's difficult to to leave that kind of conditioning when maybe the rest of you wasn't up to it. Well, and the other the other thing is in the military they tell you when you're supposed to eat, when you're supposed to get up, where you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's especially problematic for young people coming from communities like this, okay, rural communities, where if I'm not college-bound, there's not a lot of opportunity for me. And I go to the recruiter's office, and the recruiters are salesmen, saleswomen, and they sell me on a concept which works out for some people, doesn't work out for others. But I may get in and be trained in something that's not translatable to the civilian world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like an artillery person or a tank driver or uh, underwater demolition, which that, that may be translatable in some, some degree. But now when I get out, where do I start? Mm-hmm. I think that can be a real shock, having to put myself on a schedule and having personal responsibility. Right. I, I think it's the biggest tragedy in our life that we feel that there isn't much to life to engage us. And that's why I think the military can seem like a very appealing thing to young people who are not really on a course because it, it's the direction is set for you. We're going to give you this scale, and it's a very high-level scale. Right. And aren't, aren't you going to be fortunate when you get out of here to have this skill? But if it's not a skill that was attuned to who you are as a person or... Um, you're going to leave there and you're going to be bereft. Um, so I think that individual therapy is a great place to find your the bearing. Uh, uh, what path do I want to take? Where is does my desire really live? Uh, I don't want to be a mechanic. I don't want to be an underwater detonation specialist. It doesn't apply to my life. Where am I headed? Where do I want to go? Where's my passion? Where's my passion? Right. And that's uh, a real discovery. That's a road of discovery. And that's what individual psychotherapy is is really, I think, a, a, can be a gift to oneself. Kind of like a line from the Eagles song, Hotel California. <laughs> you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. How do you feel about the availability of folks like yourself or services like you provide in the Wayne Pike area and and of course over here on this side of the river in Sullivan County I mean are there enough of you folks to go around to meet the need there's definitely not enough to meet the need because we're talking about millions of people the data is that three million vets that for each veteran ten people have been impacted by the transmission of trauma if we can put it that way so that's 30 million people now Hmm. and that's a, a humongous part of the population. I have my one story. 
about not understanding what what was happening to me, and it completely turned my life upside down until I realized that um, there was just so much of my heart and my emotional life involved that it became a, a passion to try to help people because I first wanted to help the person I loved. Well, that's what the Campaign for Change is about. It's about really knowing the signs so that we can respond without getting our lives turned upside down like I did, that we can respond to the needs of the person who isn't really in a bad state without whole families getting um, destroyed or and without our society being so terribly affected by it. You know, it's it's a really compelling story. You know, you're talking about your personal experience. But I have to ask, if you didn't go through that, what would the depth of your understanding really be now? It would be nothing. I would have no way of understanding. I had to be in that trench. I had to be covered with the human remains of every person that he grew up with. These were 20 of his boyhood friends who were, um, the shell hit the trench that he was in. He he survived it, but he was underneath the remains of 20 of his boyhood friends. He, they grew up together. And he was the one survivor. It's it's unimaginably deforming of the person. There's There's no way I could know anything about what that's like, except that it was transmitted to me, and I dreamed it. So I woke up screaming because I was being pelted with those remains. Now, there's no nothing in my life that would ever say that was my dream. I know it was not my dream, but I dreamed it. That's the transmission of trauma I'm talking about that is everywhere in the world today. So in closing, what do you want to say to area vets that may be listening to this program or caretakers or relatives, people that care about vets or are having problems, what do you want to tell them? First, I always feel like I want to say I'm sorry to people for sharing that story because it's so horrible, and I would never want anyone to feel traumatized by sharing a story, and we, we all know how easily people can be re-traumatized. But I, I say it because I hope that people will get help, the help that's out there, and Give an Hour is an incredible resource. If you just go to that website, you'll be able to find someone who is available, who is willing and ready and able to volunteer um, their services to you. So no matter where you are, you can go to that website, and they will drill down to see where you are and what's available in that area, right? Oh, you can do the drilling yourself. You'll find people right there, and the phone numbers are there, and the contact information is there. Okay, so what was that website again? It's www.giveanhour.org. Karen Morrison, how do folks get in touch with you here in Narrowsburg if they want to talk to you? Um, I can be found on Psychology Today's website, or you can go to my website, which is www.karenmorristherapist.com. I'm in Narrowsburg, New York, and I do have opening now for a veteran in my practice, so I'll be happy to hear from someone. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, that's uh, one very compelling story. And something I hadn't thought about is how uh, that trauma is not owned only by the person who suffered it. It uh, transmits to the people around, and um, we thank Karen for that story tonight. You're listening to WJFF Jeffersonville, and the show is Let's Talk Vets. Moving right along, military sexual trauma is a big issue that many folks would rather not discuss. According to a recent Pentagon report based on a 2018 anonymous DOD survey, about 20,500 U.S. service members, 13,000 men, 7,500, uh, 13,000 women, 7,500 men were victims of sexual assault while serving. More troubling is the fact that many still do not report the incidents for fear of retaliation by senior ranking members of their units. Janelle Menendez is the 
founder, chairman, and CEO of the Military Sexual Trauma Movement, founded in 2018 to give voice to the victims of military sexual trauma and raise public awareness of this aberrant issue. Please join me in welcoming Janelle Marina Mendez, who is the CEO and charwoman of the Military Sexual Trauma Movement. Hi, Janelle. How's everyone doing? Good, good. This is a this is a an organization and a topic that hasn't gotten a lot of press and and hasn't been on the forefront of a lot of people or a lot of organizations, government organizations either. So why did you feel compelled to form this organization? Um, okay, so I myself am a survivor of military sexual trauma. So during my time on active duty, I went through a series of sexual violence at the age of 17 years old. And when I came out of the military, I didn't have any resources available to help me get through the challenges that I was facing. And then as a result, over the years, I was diagnosed by the VA with PTSD. And I started seeking treatment in 2018. I uh, miscarried halfway through a pregnancy. And when that happened, the PTSD episode I had was so severe. It was a PTSD episode on steroids. And what I realized was that we don't talk about what PTSD due to MST, which is military sexual trauma, what that experience is like, and then what it's like for women specifically, because when I was going through that, I, I was going through a PTSD episode, but because of how far I was in the pregnancy, I went through postpartum depression. It made it so profound that it felt like I was, you know, 18 years old going through my first PTSD episode all over again. And my emotional well-being was so damaged. Nothing is being done to change this for, you know, the service members that are coming next. And I was frustrated and angry that elected officials are ignoring this. The Department of Defense is ignoring it. The general public has no idea what's going on. And I started really educating myself. And when I looked at the statistics... I was like, this is a crisis and no one is standing up to address it. And part of what I realized was that no one who was going through the experiences was communicating it in a way that would captivate an audience and, and inspire them to jump into action. So I had decided that I would come out and start talking about my experience publicly um, in hopes that it would inspire others. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, so... Give our listeners a 10,000-foot general overview of what your mission is. Our mission is to enact the Military Sexual Trauma Victims' Bill of Rights. We're lobbying Congress to do that. Essentially, what we want is the implementation of those policies would protect the social welfare of active duty service members and veterans by implementing legislation that would create these universal standards across the military as well as within the veteran community. When a veteran has experienced military sexual trauma, they're 10 times more likely to develop substance abuse or addiction issues. And a veteran who has a history of military sexual trauma in their medical file is 70% more likely to commit suicide than a veteran who has not experienced that. So there's legislation that needs to be put in place that prevents those outcomes from happening. And right now, we don't have that with the exception of New York State because we just passed some laws in New York State. How do you feel your efforts have changed the culture of the VA or, for that matter, the military in general in the areas of, to mention a few, underrepresentation, lack of women's services, general invisibility, infrastructure, organizational and facilities recognition, etc. Well, some of the key moments that I think we've really had since we debuted over the last year, our communication scaled to 3 million people across the United States. Um, and that was from survivors literally just sharing content, sharing stories, and really just getting that momentum going. As a result of that happening, we were able to achieve a lot of opportunity. And because of the public interest and in the conversations happening in the military community, 
public officials started to listen and engage with us in a way that they haven't done before. And one of the key things, too, that has happened in New York and that also happened on the federal level, there is a Women's Veterans Day. Like, that didn't exist prior to last year. Do you think that uh, the recognition is because you shine the light of day and some of these people feel now, well, now we have to do something? Yeah, well, that's kind of what happens. If you look at American history since the inception of America, you look at people like Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or Diane Nash, or Martin Luther King, Sojourner Truth, like those are very iconic people. They literally started movements based on taking a strong stance to disrupt the establishment until they listen. And I think that is what inspires me to stand up for my community. So on your Facebook page, you've listed uh, some major challenges that you had in 2019. So I'm going to just mention them, and you can just comment briefly on each one, please. Managing disabilities. So our movement obviously attracts the affected community. So what happens is not only do I have severe disabilities, but the entire movement has severe disabilities. Constantly dealing with triggers. I remember, you know, doing the Women's March, and that morning when I woke up, I was so triggered, like I was terrified. I was like, I'm about to tell people what I've gone through and I'm starting to have flashbacks. And now I'm like, I have to go there. I have to go through with this. I have to speak up for my community. I was literally having a full blown PTSD episode flare up. And I had to manage that the entire day to execute what I needed to execute. And that became the most iconic moment for the movement because that's what inspired the Restoration of Honor Act to get approved in New York State. Because the other thing is when a lot of times when people do have PTSD, they have problems with interpersonal relationships. That's like one of the key struggles. So what happens is when you have an entire community that has the same struggle going on, if people are not in treatment, it has an adverse outcome because someone is only able to think for themselves and their fight or flight goes off and they can't understand how their actions could be harmful to all the people they're connected with. I see, you know, volunteers and they're doing their efforts. They're working really hard on themselves. They're having progress with the movement. They're in therapy. And I see the healing process happen. And then I see other people who have come in where they're unhealthy and they're not managing their disabilities and they harm everyone else around them but they don't have the capacity or the awareness to understand. So I have to protect everyone who's really putting in these efforts. And at the same time, I have to manage these struggles from the disabilities. And I have to also come from a place of compassion where I have to understand that like that person is may not be capable to be a part of the movement. And that that's also hard conversations I have to have. This has got to be a big one. Resistance from senior military and elected officials. Oh, yeah. They just don't want to hear it, right? Yeah. You know what I think it is? There's still a fight for equal rights, right? We, We have not achieved the ideal. And I think a lot of what happens is there's this mindset. Men are superior to women. So if you're going into the military and you're a female, you should expect to have sexual violence. Or if you are a male and you're not macho or you're not assertive or you don't fit this ideal of what it means to be someone in the military, then like, you know, you should expect to experience sexual violence. There's no reason that internal violence should be happening within an organization. But when you have an organization that is designed to protect the interest of one party and harm anything that's coming in its way obviously that organization is going to have struggle with internal violence. So there is a mindset with senior leaders that this is the only way it could be. When the people within the movement and myself have gone to senior leaders and spoken to them about these obstacles, they just don't want to hear it. They'll give lip service and it will be conversations of, oh, we're working on it. We have this SHARP program. We, we're de- redesigning this and we have this task force that's really fighting this. But in reality, like, you cannot solve problems from the same level of consciousness and power that's causing it. 
So there's no discernible action or, right. or little discernible action yeah. that comes out of these conversations. Incredible levels of courage that you have already expounded on and the courage that it takes to come forward and self-identify oh, as yeah. having had these issues and then the levels of courage required for a person like yourself or, and others in your organization to speak publicly. It is frightening and I feel the fear. You go through that on a regular basis and I think oftentimes what I've noticed with survivors who do come forward, I see their emotional spectrum play out where they're ready to come forward, but then when they do, they're experiencing the PTSD flare-ups, they're experiencing the symptoms that come with it. We, we work together to help everybody process it out, you know, and everyone is managing their disabilities, but I see how the there's an impact from the line of telling the story to getting like getting there like I have a willingness to tell my story but what it actually takes inside of yourself to get there is more courage than you know you have and it's uncomfortable to the point that you're you're experiencing your disability so you have to know how to manage it and then you have to know how to engage with the community to get support in a positive way but when you get to the other side and you do it, there is a reward and a healing process that I have seen every single person who has made it there, has, that they've achieved that milestone. And when they do, I see the healing process happen in a way that I don't think they would have gotten from therapy alone. Like when they see that their voice and their story is actually impacting change and it's changing the future for those that come next, I see like this hero instinct emerge in people. Therapy will help you with your disabilities, but to see survivors go through that evolution of being a victim to just surviving to now thriving and being molded into a leader. And when they, when they create this new level of courage that they didn't know was in them, that for me is why am I doing this? How about security risks and severe harassment? Yeah. I guess we're talking about personal. Well, yeah, so that definitely happens. I, I've gotten death threats. I've gotten serious threats of violence for speaking out. Um, and it's, it has, it's not only been me. It's been other survivors who have spoken out. But it's been like the figureheads, the key people who are constantly speaking out and that are representing the movement uh, across the country. The movement in itself, we do political advocacy, but what I don't think people understand is all movements not only challenge the system politically, but they use their resources to expose the corruption that's causing the injustice. And that that's prevalent within the civil rights movement. Like Rosa Parks, the her sitting in the front of a bus actually came from another action and that was planned to create exposure, right? The movement does that. Right. So we have gone after senior figures in the military and exposed their leadership failures because the Department of Defense has they haven't wanted to respond. They've just provided lip service. So when that happens, you have people on the other side of this ideology that are not they, they don't agree with women's rights. They don't agree with creating a culture that protects everyone or that protects other minority populations or that, you know, protects the LGBTQ community. So when you're taking a stance as a political figure and it's anything related to civil rights or equal rights, you have to expect that when you're the figurehead, this is going to happen. I knew that, but I didn't realize what it would feel like. And I also had to learn how the security risks that I have can impact everybody around me. And like that was a sobering, sobering thought. There are these times where I feel the level of responsibility and the weight on my shoulders of what I'm actually doing, like the gravity of it. And like, I will sit there and I will just cry because I, I sit there and I'm like, how am I even capable of doing this? I'm disabled myself. And then when I attach that to everyone I'm connected to, like even with my job, I was working in finance for about 12 years. And um, I, we got some serious, serious security threats about coming to my job and like not only harming me, but harming the organization. And like I had to get the organization involved. They had to get like global security involved. 
and they had to get armed armed security guards because of how severe the threats were. So the thing about it is like that's part that's just part of politics. So here's one I didn't think about till I sat down and started to put this together. The silent suffering of male survivors of military sexual trauma. Yeah, so we obviously come across our our movement, there's no gender biases. We do have more females who come out publicly, but we do have a lot of males in the um, movement itself. What we have found with men is that because of the social construct, they have a a like a worse time. Like I've seen women suffer from this experience. But for men, it's like they're holding on to life by a thread. Even when some of them are are telling me, I want to tell my story, I want to come forward. And even like telling one person in the movement their story, the flashbacks and everything is so severe, like then they can't function for like a week. And then you're like, okay, your social welfare comes first. So we cannot put you forward to speak. And we want. Okay, not sure what happened there, but we lost part of our interview. So stay with us as we'll continue here in a moment. WJFF's Spring Pledge Drive starts Friday. Please consider making a donation now so that we can meet our goal and get right back to uninterrupted programming. There's a lot happening, and it's happening fast. From the election to the economy to the public health threat of the coronavirus, WJFF brings you the news and info, national and local, that keeps you informed, not afraid. Help keep our community up to date by making the pledge drive as short as possible. Give what you can now at WJFFradio.org. Thank you. March 25th marks the return of WJFF's movies and music series with Stop Making Sense. Directed by Jonathan Demme and the Talking Heads, this artful and funky film is one of the great concert movies. We're showing it at the Calicoon Theater with an after party at the Raleigh. Tickets and info at WJFFradio.org.
And you're listening to Let's Talk Vets here on WJFF. And um, unfortunately, we had a lapse in audio in that uh, recording. We're not sure what happened, but we're going to forge ahead. Listen, uh, we want to tell you about a couple of online courses that are sponsored by the Chester Public Library for Women. They're hosting two educational webinars and a panel discussion. The goal is to provide accessible learning opportunities for women veterans. The webinars will focus on enhancing digital literacy skills and financial education. Now, the speaker and the facilitator is Sharon Bailey. She's a major USAF, and she'll present both the webinar sessions and moderate the panel discussion. She has worked as a military social worker, an educator, an academic counselor, a military life family counselor, and a clinician for the Department of Defense and also for Veterans Affairs. And she is currently a Veterans Outreach Administrator for the PFC Joseph P. DeWire vet to vet program at Bridges in Rockland County. So, you can register online. We'll tell you a little bit about that. The two courses are Financial Literacy, Making the Most of Your Military Resources, and the date is March 24, 2020. The time, 11 a.m. to 12 noon. The webinar ID is 526-298-319. And to register, go to Zoom dot us slash join and register with the webinar id that we just gave you and uh, don't worry if you didn't catch it i'm going to give you a contact for more information here in a moment digital literacy skills know how to market your military skills into a career recognize your military experience and know how it can translate into a career outside of the military the date for that one is the 25th of march 11 a.m to 12 noon and the webinar ID for that one is uh, 496-475-345 to register. Again, it's uh, go to zoom.us slash join, and you'll register with your webinar ID. Now, for more information, uh, you can call Irene Dunn at idunn at rcis.org. Or you can call Irene at 845-469-4252. Uh, we've got some housekeeping also for you this evening. You let you know. This if you want. Okay. Let you know at the top of the hour what's going on. Um, Brad Mann's neonatal pulse has moved to Sunday nights at 7. So tonight and for the foreseeable future, we'll be uh, presenting Retro Cocktail Hour with Daryl Brogdon. That'll be a mix of Space Age, Bachelor Pad music, Tiki Tunes, Private Eye Jazz, Exotica, and other strange music. So get your scotch out and prepare for that. <laughs> and at 9 p.m., uh, NPR live coverage of President Trump's address to the nation regarding the coronavirus global pandemic. That'll be here as carried by NPR live. So once you made it to a certain level in finance, now there's universal federal standards and there's a regulating body called FINRA. So that, that's what inspired um, our legislation for MIRA. And that specifically is what we're looking for Congress to do is step up and say, hey, this body with unregulated power, resources and intimidation and weapons that can essentially do whatever they want write down and document whatever they want for an outcome is now going to be regulated and have universal standards on how they exert their power and leadership amongst everyone in the military, but specifically protecting the vulnerable populations. So that's so, what's next. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess my next question is kind of a moot point. I was going to ask you, do you ever feel there's going to be a point where you can say mission accomplished? I think the mission evolves. So, yes, I believe that there will be a point that this mission will be accomplished. 
the more that I get involved with the community, the more I learn. So like what part of what inspired the Restoration of Honor Act and expanding that to other veterans with disabilities as well as the LGBTQ community was learning people who went through MST but also were like doubly disenfranchised. So I think the movement itself is going to be a stepping stone for much bigger missions later on. Um, right now that this is a big mission, like <laughs> this is a big, like this is the biggest undertaking I've ever done in my life. And like when I'm successful sometimes with certain things I'm doing myself, it, it blows my mind, blows my mind. And then when I see other veterans with disabilities achieving success, it blows my mind even more that that's happening. So it's like, to me, the sky's the limit because if People with severe disabilities, and, and I, I don't know if the, everyone knows this, but when people go through sexual violence, even the general population, uh, nine out of ten times you will end up with the most severe type of, of PTSD in the, the episodes, more so than you would from combat or childhood trauma. And then if you combine combat and childhood trauma, it, it's even worse how bad it is. So we're dealing with that population of severe disabilities so to see people do that, it's remarkable because I have never seen something like that before. And to be a part of it, it, it it's truly mind blowing. It's like I sit there sometimes and I'm like, I didn't even know this was possible. And then I, I look at myself and I look at everyone else who's really a part of this huge mission and I'm seeing what we're capable of and I'm thankful. Like it, it's a humbling experience that there's belief in this higher power that's helping pave this path to what is possible when you get to these points and you feel like it's impossible. In terms of, of size, how big is your organization? So we have 8,000 supporters uh, across the country uh, that are actively engaged. Uh, some are on social media, some are doing things behind the scenes. Like it's everyone does something different. Uh, in terms of um, active volunteers that engage on a regular basis, we have about 400 around the country. And then key leaders where they have evolved to the point in the organization where they're able to do demonstrations, challenge the establishment, use their voice, where they're healthy enough to do that. Um, right now we have five key people that are able to lead on that level. All right. How do you feel uh, your participation in the uh, Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force has benefited your efforts, and how is your participation benefiting them? That's actually really great, and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so the New York State Veterans Task Force in the Hudson Valley is a group of veteran non-for-profits, uh, elected officials, um, you know, their people come. Like, it's, it's just everybody who's involved in the veteran community in some capacity, and what really was uh, like life changing about that is that that is where the movement really like blew up in New York. Um, Larry Newman, he is, he's the leader for the New York State Veterans Task Force for anyone who doesn't know that. And he works with Mental Health America. So what ended up happening was I, I went and I met with him at the request of Dee Dee Barrett. I did the women's march and she was there. And that's why I said that was a really iconic point for where the movement went. Because when she heard my speech, she she was mind blown. And she invited me in to talk to her. And what was going on was the New York State Veterans Task Force, they were looking to resolve certain issues and primarily veteran homelessness. But one of the key things for Dee Dee was that being the first female veteran chair, she wanted to pursue legislation that would protect female veterans. The problem with that is no one really told her what the female veteran issues were. And she hears my speech at the Women's March. And I just remember like being terrified and I come off the stage and she like gives me a huge hug. And she was just like, that was powerful. You know, we, we do some meetings, we talk about what's going on. And she was like, you're providing me with the most robust education to start working with. What I did was I gave her my medical files that are related to PTSD and military sexual trauma because I wanted her to have an understanding of how it actually affects women. So, you know, she needed an education and I, that was the best way that I could give it to her for her to see how we needed to structure this legislation. That was when she had told me to meet up with Larry. So Larry and I spoke 
and we connected and when we spoke about those issues at hand and we're going over everything and and for him he's like I'm receiving an education right now and you're talking about here's these two people who have a lot of influence in the veteran community in New York State and both of them are telling me that my story and what I'm communicating to them is an education on what female veterans are experiencing that they had no idea about so that was when Larry invited me to actually speak to uh, the New York State Task Force, and it was a packed room. So I give a, a presentation, and I tell my story along with what's actually happening to this disenfranchised community that, that's broken in silence, that, that is invisible. It was, you know, about an hour long, and I get a standing ovation, and the, like, there was not a dry eye in that room. <laughs> including me and I just remember at the end all of these veterans organizations were like we're, we want to sign on to this we want to help you we want to move this forward and everyone went back to their own organizations and when they went back to their organizations MST was now on the radar and because of that other opportunities had come up you know just like this opportunity and other opportunities came up where now I was like traveling all across New York and going to all of these organizations and then you know, working on putting this legislation forward in New York State as well as now representing women veterans in a way that I don't think they've been represented before. So that was a major change where the movement benefited. In terms of the task force and how they've benefited, I think me coming and being as vulnerable and honest with my storyline, now these other organizations realize that there was challenges that were essentially inadvertently discriminating against women veterans because like what would happen a lot of times is for you to qualify for this housing benefit, you need to have an honorable discharge. Well, there's a 67% retaliation rate, meaning that all of them have OTHs, BCDs, or dishonorables. So the 70% who are most at risk for homelessness, you can't even help because they were retaliated against. And at the same time, your policy is inadvertently inhibiting you from actually helping the people you want to help. So I think I was able to come in and provide that education and that the movement was able to work with all of these people to now say, okay, we need policy changes. So you provided a completely fresh perspective to a lot of folks. Well, it sounds to me like you're doing a great job at that. So. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time. So in closing thoughts, how can folks get together and help? You can go to the volunteer section of our website and you can sign up there to volunteer if you want to get actively engaged. So if you sign up, that's the first step. And then we'll work on an onboarding process and a screening process because, as I mentioned, this isn't for everyone. It's a, it's a political movement. So, you know, there is a screening process that does go on. Well, there but is, folks don't have to be uh, directly, personally affected. No, 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 no. They don't to have help out. to. They don't have to be. Um, we so we're we're pretty open, but I will tell you that the people who generally stand up to volunteer have been affected. Okay. That's normally what happens. Right. A lot of times, people who are maybe like second or third generation separated, like maybe a mom, a, a sibling, or someone like that, um, who's not directly affected, they generally will want to be on our newsletter. They'll be a supporter. They'll share content or they'll donate. In terms of our website though, our website has everything. So you can What is up. what is that website? mstmovement.org mm -hmm. is where you can go. And it, when you engage in the website, it has everything for you to educate yourself on what's happening and how to get involved. And also there's stories of what people have done already and you can see who's already laid down the roadmap. And you're on Facebook too. Right? Yes, we're on Facebook, the Military Sexual Trauma Movement. We're on Twitter under MST Movement. We're on Instagram under Military Sexual Trauma because we couldn't put movement at the end. So yeah, we're, we're on everything. Your email? Uh, my email is Janelle at mstmovement.org. And if people want to contact you by phone? Um, so our, my number is 914-703-7344. That's going to be the best place to get in contact. Thank um, you, Janelle. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Well, our apologies there to the listeners and to Janelle. We will re-air that interview. Um, we'll let you know uh, when that's going to happen. I'm going to try and do it later this month. So 
uh, be aware of the, uh, the the promo messages to re-air that. We, we thank you again for your patience. Don't know what happened, but who says uh, live radio isn't fascinating? A little like showing up for midnight chow and to have the lights go out about the time you get your eggs. Thanks for joining us at Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us upcoming events so that we may get them on the air, both in our normal public affairs uh, 